And now on to today, it is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Brian Haugen, who is a professor of medicine and pathology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. He is the chief of the division of endocrinology and metabolism, and he is the director of the thyroid tumor program. Dr. Haugen received his MD from the Mayo Clinic, and he completed internal medicine and endocrinology fellowship training at Colorado. He served as the president of the American Thyroid Association between 2012 and 2013, and he chaired the most recent ATA nodule, uh, thyroid nodule and thyroid cancer guidelines that were published in January 2016. A very easy and lovely read if you are bored, right? <laughs> Um, those guidelines have been a tremendous help for practicing endocrinologists. They've made a real, a real change in our practice of uh, thyroid cancer treatment. Dr. Haugen's clinical and research interests, if you have not guessed yet, are primarily centered on thyroid neoplasms, advanced thyroid cancer, and thyroid dysfunction. He runs a very successful research program in thyroid neoplasm diagnostics and therapeutics, and is very well published. And his clinical and research efforts have earned him numerous awards and recognitions. We are honored to host Dr. Haugen this week. Um, today, he's giving us the um, uh, grand, internal medicine grand rounds. Tomorrow morning, he will be giving the endocrine grand rounds at 7.30 for those interested. Um, and I can't wait to hear about the treatment of hypothyroidism in 2020. I sure hope it's simple. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Shibley. I don't know, if, can you hear me okay in the back? Okay, good. Um, it really is a pleasure being here. As, as you know, I spent a fair amount of time just a bit north of here in Rochester, Minnesota. So I, and Denver is as cold as it is here right now, so I, this wasn't a big change for me uh, coming. It's a, actually a beautiful sunny day. So uh, thank you very much for having me. And um, what I wanted to talk about today is treating hypothyroidism, which it, it, it really is, a lot of people talk about it being very simple. And what I want to do is present two patient cases um, and then kind of dig into that a little bit and um, maybe challenge that a bit uh, and figure out what we should do with our patients who are hypothyroid and are not doing well in levothyroxine. Um, I have no disclosures uh, for this presentation. And um, so the outline of my talk, it's a little different than what other people do with outlines. What, what I'm going to do, this is my simple outline, is I'm going to begin practical. I'm going to get incredibly esoteric. I just warn you ahead of time. I'm a molecular biologist. I love chemistry. I'm going to really get into that. And then I'm going to come back practical. So I want to begin practical and finish practical, but I'm going to get pretty esoteric in the middle. So the practical beginning, we always talk about patients. And this was a patient, one of many, many patients that I see. I primarily see patients with thyroid cancer. So I see them with a thyroid before, and then they come to me after a thyroidectomy. And this is kind of what got me interested in treating for hypothyroidism. This is a 38-year-old female who had a thyroidectomy for papillary thyroid cancer. Small tumor, no invasion, no abnormal lymph node seen. We typically have them come back six to eight weeks later on levothyroxine, they were discharged. She was discharged on 112 micrograms of levothyroxine. Her TSH was in the lower part of the reference range. Thyroglobulin, the tumor marker, was very low. She was not given radioiodine, that's a whole nother talk. Um, 
And then she had a six-month follow-up. Labs looked great. A neck ultrasound looked good. She felt well. She had no complaints. This is why I love taking care of patients with low-risk thyroid cancer. So we get to talk about her family. We get to talk about all sorts of other things. Um, this is easy, right? That's what we're asking the question. It's simple. We have one disease, hypothyroidism. In this case, it was post-surgical hypothyroidism. We have one test, TSH. It's easy to do. Don't mess around with free T3 and reverse T3 and all those things. And we have one therapy, levothyroxine. Again, I really love doing this. This is kind of nice. The people treating diabetes and things like that, much more complicated. So I could finish the talk here because that's sort of the simple answer, but I, again, want to get a little bit more complicated with you. And I want to use Jessie as my second patient um, for this. She came to me, a 32-year-old female. She had her thyroid removed. Now she had more extensive neck dissection to remove lymph nodes, and she had... Um, 2.2 centimeter tumor, no extrathyroidal invasion, but a number of lymph nodes were involved. Eight weeks later, she comes back on a, a weight-based levothyroxine. Her TSH looks pretty good. We want to mildly suppress her. Thyroglobulin looks good. She did get radioiodine. Again, I'm not going to go into details on that. And she comes back for her six-month follow-up. 125 micrograms of levothyroxine. TSH looks great. Thyroglobulin, nice and low, neck ultrasound negative. So this is somebody who got a little more detailed therapy, but again, looks similar to the last patient. She looks fantastic. And I say to her, Jesse, everything looks great. Any questions? That was my first problem. <laughs> she says, why do I feel so terrible? I, I'm fatigued. Patients, a lot of patients will say to us, I have brain fog. I just can't think right. I have weight gain. So what do I do? She's unhappy. She's been six months on levothyroxine. Her TSH is perfect. She is unhappy. Well, what I could do is this. Anybody know what INYT stands for? It's not your thyroid. So there was somebody, a famous person in the East Coast, I won't say who, who supposedly puts in their notes INYT when a patient comes in complaining. It's something else. But what the patient is saying is you're not listening to me. I don't feel well. They don't care what you're calling it. They just don't feel well. So what are our responses? It's not your thyroid. Go away. See your primary care physician. Right? Not my problem. I took care of your thyroid cancer. It's not your thyroid, but maybe it could be something else. And I'll come back to that in the practical part at the end of what are the things we should think about in these patients. And then, of course, the third one is maybe it is related to your thyroid. Maybe we're not doing a perfect job. And that's where I want to get a little bit controversial here in are we doing a perfect job? And we want to get into that a little bit more on replacing with levothyroxine. So, again, I'm going to hit some different studies and talk about different aspects. And, again, get pretty esoteric at times, but keep it clinical at other times. This was just, to me, an interesting observational study. So it's, again, not a well-controlled study, relatively small observational study. What they did was they took patients who didn't have cancer, and they either got a thyroidectomy, the complete thyroid removed, or a lobectomy, half and half. And what they looked at was this characteristic thing called asthenia, tiredness causing reduced ability to perform physical and mental work not improved by rest greater than six months. That's asthenia. To get into the study, you could not have that to begin with. And then you either got a lobectomy or a thyroidectomy. How did they do? Lobectomy, nobody came back later with asthenia. Thyroidectomy, a third of them had asthenia. 
didn't feel right when their thyroid was removed. And again, that's what's gotten me into this. Not, I'm not going to talk so much about the Hashimoto's that's related to this, but I think there's a whole host of other issues with that. These are patients who are feeling pretty good. You take their thyroid out, and now they don't feel so good on levothyroxine. So this, the turn of the last century, so in the late 1800s, um, is kind of the face of hypothyroidism. This is a woman in her 40s in the late 1800s, myxedema. She got treated with thyroid hormone and got a lot better. Her thyroid hormone was sheep extract that she got injected. What was interesting is people realized you could actually cook it. It could make it through uh, stomach acid so you could eat thyroids. And there actually were recipe books out there for eating sheep thyroids. Um, but of course, we know now we have pill forms of levothyroxine. But this used to be, 100 years ago or more, the face of hypothyroidism. Now more and more, this is kind of the face of hypothyroidism. We don't see people who have classic myxedema. Occasionally we do in the hospital when they come in and they're not taking their thyroid hormone or newly diagnosed. But most often it's other things, not these classic features that we see. If you want to learn, kind of read more about this and some of the controversies, this is really a good review in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Liz Mechanic and Tony Bianco, uh, looking at, they call the history and future treatment of hypothyroidism. And I just want to highlight in this timeline a few things. Again, back in the late 1800s, it was known for years that there was a thing called myxedema, this syndrome. Nobody had an idea of what was causing it. It took surgeons to help us figure that out. Because when they started taking thyroids out, people got this syndrome. And because they, for years, couldn't safely take the thyroid out, Coker and the others really reduced the mortality of thyroidectomy. And then they started seeing this syndrome and said, aha, taking this gland out is what's giving us this myxedema. Then it was in sort of the 19, late 40s and into the 50s, mid 50s, when levothyroxine was synthesized. It had actually been first discovered back around 1917 but it was synthesized, and then it was commercially available in um, 1955. And so that's when we started shifting over from extracts to levothyroxine. And then the other date is in the 70s when we were able to start sampling and measuring TSH. Before we measured something called protein-bound iodine, and not even T4 levels, T4 and T3 levels came later. And then the TSH measurement really helped us, as we always say, that's your individual set point. And that's what we're working with here, the TSH. And again, we'll come back to some potential controversies there. But those are some big steps along the way in uh, managing patients with hypothyroidism. So what about symptoms, you know, after um, when patients are on levothyroxine therapy? And this study, a number of these studies out of the UK, this was a community-based questionnaire had hypothyroid patients with a normal TSH on levothyroxine. Actually, their first normal TSH went up to like six. And they even looked at a subgroup that only went up to four for a TSH. The reference range in most assays is usually around 0 0.4, 0 0.5, to up around four to five, depending upon the assay. That's the reference range. There's data I'm not gonna show you that actually people probably do better more in that 0.5 to two and a half or three range. But anyway, they had these guys, and they even had a tighter control group. And when they looked at general health questionnaire, so these are the controls. They don't have hypothyroidism. A quarter of them didn't feel so good. And we know that. There are patients who just don't feel so good. Matched thyroid patients on levothyroxine felt worse, even with when we've normalized their TSH. Not a ton, 
but there are some patients who felt worse. Then even if we look at a thyroid symptom questionnaire, which always, this is, always impresses me, 35% of people who don't have a thyroid problem have an abnormal thyroid questionnaire because we know those are fairly nonspecific symptoms that these patients have. But a higher number and a significantly higher number of patients, again, on levothyroxine with the TSH where we'd like to target it, a higher number still had these thyroid symptoms. And I think, again, we see this a lot in our clinic. A lot of patients do very well, like that first patient on levothyroxine. There's a subset, and I want you to keep the number 10 to 15% in your head as we go along. Uh, because I'll show you some data that kind of keeps coming back to that number. So this was a study called Western Area T4, T3 study, or Watts study. So again, they took these patients uh, with hypothyroidism on levothyroxine from this previous study, and they did a general health questionnaire, and the thyroid symptom questionnaire, again, had a pretty good range in this subset of patients for TSH that they looked at. And what they found is well-being significantly correlated indirectly with TSH. The higher the TSH, even within the reference range, the worse the people did as a population. The other problem we're going to have is teasing out individuals from a population. And then uh, directly with free T4. The higher the free T4, the better they felt. Interestingly, and people measure T3 all the time, it didn't correlate with T3. And one thing I guess I would say in our hypothyroid patients, don't measure T3. Two, for two reasons. I don't think serum T3 correlates very well. And number two, if you really want to get at the question of T3, it's really T3 in the tissues we're trying to get at. And that's what we do with TSH. We don't have a good measure for other tissues. I don't think T3 in the blood is really telling us that much. I'll come back, though, to some dissenters on that. Um, they recommend monitoring with TSH and free T4, our hypothyroid patients. I disagree. I still think we ought to measure the TSH, not the free T4. Again, those of you who have done this a fair amount, you get a nice TSH and the free T4 is high, or the free T4 is low. A lot of these rapid platform assays, the free T4, it, there can be variability. And then what do I do about that? I ignore the free T4. So why measure it? So if you know somebody has an intact hypothalamic pituitary thyroid axis, you know, the hypothalamus and the pituitary are good, follow the TSH in most patients. So what about guidelines? What do they say about treating hypothyroidism? This is the American Thyroid Association guidelines. Jackie Jonkless and Tony Bianco led this uh, in 2014. I think they're getting ready to come out with another set. It'll be interesting to see what they say. They say a number of recent advances in our understanding of thyroid physiology may shed light on why some patients feel unwell while taking levothyroxine monotherapy. And again, I'll show you some of that data. Their conclusions, though, are that levothyroxine should remain the standard of care for treating hypothyroidism. And I agree with that in general. And I'll come back to some of the caveats. They do recommend for future research needs, we need to develop better biomarkers of euthyroidism in other tissues. I always say to my patients, when I check a TSH, I'm asking, is your pituitary and hypothalamus happy with that dose? Not, is your liver, is your skeletal muscle, is your heart, is your, the rest of your brain happy with that level? just your hypothalamus and pituitary. So what are the clinical and biochemical goals for levothyroxine replacement of primary hypothyroidism from these guidelines? And they put three things in this recommendation. Resolution of hypothyroid symptoms and signs, normalization of TSH, and avoidance of overtreatment. If we look at that, it's not always easy to make those three match. Just like we had in Jesse, our second patient, TSH was normalized. I don't think I'm over-treating her. 
but at least the signs and symptoms that could be related to thyroid are not ameliorated. And then some patients love to be put on excess thyroid hormone and their TSH is completely suppressed. And we know in those patients there really is good evidence that long-term we're stressing their heart, atrial fibrillation, and we're also stressing their bones with bone loss, osteoporosis, and fracture. So we need to balance these three things. So now going back a little bit more, stepping back a little more esoterically, thinking about the thyroid, the reason why people talk about combination therapies is the thyroid itself makes both T4 and T3. And if you look at a thyroid, and this is from a, a 60 to 70 kilogram person, they make about 85 micrograms per day of, of T4 and about 6.5 micrograms of T3, okay? And then this is about 20% of all the T3 that they have. The rest of it, 80%, is converted in the periphery. And interestingly, a lot of that is in the brain. Diagnase type 2 is primarily it's in the brain. It isn't D1, diagnase type 1 in the liver and kidney that does this primarily. It's type 2 diagnase. So we know, I think a lot of people know that there's this TSH um, diurnal variation, probably related to cortisol. Cortisol can suppress TSH. And if we look in healthy controls, we see kind of in the morning is when our TSH is at the lowest. And when patients are admitted to the hospital at midnight and you want to get a TSH, it's going to be a bit higher. And then we get consulted for a high TSH. So if, unless you need it for an emergency, check it during the day or don't check it during the hospitalization. Because obviously we know illness can really affect this. If you look at the free T4 level, there is no diurnal variation. But if you look at the T3 level, there is. This diurnal variation that this study at least has said probably is lags about a half an hour to hour behind the TSH. So they're speculating, they don't have evidence, but speculating that the TSH is driving this production of T3. The higher the TSH, you're maybe making a bit more T3. Could be peripheral conversion as well. But there seems to be a diurnal variation in T3. So how well do we do with this when we replace people on levothyroxine? This was a study by uh, Francesco Celli and colleagues where what they did was they took people who were hypothyroid and they did this uh, randomized uh, one time and it was blinded. They got levothyroxine alone and the other time they just got um, uh, liothyronine alone, T3. Um, and that, the, interestingly, you see the three arrows here. They had to give the T3 three times a day to keep the T3 levels in the, in the reference range. This is the TSH. So TSH is also in the reference range for both. But the T3, you can see, interestingly, if you give just T4, you kind of have this lowish normal T3. You're not perfectly getting T3 back to normal. T3 alone, we're keeping it kind of in the high end of the reference range. If you give it less often than three times a day, but remember, this is only levothyroxine alone. I mean, um, triothyronine uh, alone. Um, if you give it less, then you're going to have peaks and valleys. It's a short-acting drug, which is one reason we talk to patients about not liking to give them this, and especially giving it to them once a day. Again, I'll come back at the practical end of how I talk about this with my patients. So you probably need to give it at least two or three times a day. Interestingly, and again, this was blinded. Patients didn't know what they were on. Wait. The patients who were on the T3 therapy actually or I should say when the period when they were on the T3 therapy, they had lower weight. So maybe there's a bit of boost in metabolism with the T3 alone in these patients. But 
If you look at a general health score called an SF36 or health related quality of life score, there was no difference in this blinded study on how they did on T4 or T3 alone. So some evidence that maybe there, you need some T3 um, when you're hypothyroid, but not perfect evidence here. This I thought was a very nice study by Jackie Jonkless and colleagues out of Georgetown. It's a fairly simple question, but it was, it's very important, and you'll see it in some of the other studies I show, is they just looked at patients before they had their thyroid removed and after they had their thyroid removed on levothyroxine at their TSH, T4, and T3 levels. So they did two measurements before surgery. Here was their TSH, and then two after surgery. One is, obviously, especially the first test after surgery, it's you know, hard to get the TSH perfectly back to where it was. You can get close. And this is pretty good. By this time, when they readjusted, they did pretty good. It looks pretty similar. They got them back to where they were before. That's good. T3, if you just basically look at this, serum T3 levels look pretty good. Okay? So we're doing good. But T4 levels were significantly higher. So to normalize TSH with levothyroxine alone in somebody when you remove their thyroid or they get hypothyroid, we do that at the expense of having a higher free T4. And if you do look carefully here, actually the T3 is a bit lower. Maybe isn't outside the reference range, but it's a bit lower than it began before they had their thyroid removed. So are we perfectly replacing, if we look at these tests, patients with levothyroxine alone, the answer is no. Now the other answer we'll come to is, does it make a difference? So here's another levothyroxine monotherapy. Can't guarantee euthyroidism in all athyroid. These are athyroidic patients, a large number of patients out of Italy. And again, euthyroid controls that had normal TSH and it was just showing the relationship of the free T4 to the TSH in this reference range. So even within the reference range, there's higher free T4 with a lower TSH. Makes sense, kind of the feedback loop. Levothyroxine-treated patients, and again, they're comparing apples and oranges a bit, so, but what you can see is there's a good, still a good relationship between free T4 and TSH. What about T3? Euthyroid controls, interestingly, across this range, you have a fairly stable T3, and that's one of the goals of type 2 deiodinase, is to keep that level of T3. You don't see that in the LT4-treated patients. Again, they run a little bit lower, and there now is a different relationship. So again, coming to the question, if we give patients levothyroxine after they have a thyroid removed or have Hashimoto's and have enough damage, are we perfectly replacing them? By these measures, the answer is no. And then this just shows if you look when people are replaced, most of them are in the reference range. That's what's the shaded area here. But about 15%, I said that 10 to 15%, about 15% of patients, adequate levothyroxine replacement, good TSH, good free T4, T3 might be a little bit low. Who are these people is one of the other questions. So now we go to this, and I don't know how many of you have ever been to this website. It's called Stop the Thyroid Madness. If you haven't, you should go to this website. It's scary and interesting. Um, it's T4 only meds like Synthroid do not work, exclaim many patients. Here's one where you can read more. It says that once a day T4 thyroid pill has wreaked havoc in all too many lives sooner or later. So a very sad, confused patient. This patient's very happy because she got natural desiccated thyroid, changes lives, and has a long history of success. So there's a lot out there in the press and in the literature of saying those 
AMA doctors, whoever they are, they, they give you levothyroxine, they're doing you a disservice, you need combination or you need desiccated thyroid. So that really has got a firestorm going on out there and patients come in and sort of ask for that. Even in uh, a little bit more reputable sites and journals, such as the Wall Street Journal, doctors hear patients' calls for new approaches to hypothyroidism. So there are, there's still this bubbling up out there of are we doing the best we can with levothyroxine alone? And these things really fuel that. So what about T4, T3 combination? And this probably is the seminal study published in 1999. And of course it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, so people took notice. This was primarily out of Lithuania. And it was patients who had hypothyroidism, thyroid's removed for non-cancerous disease, thyroid's removed for cancerous disease, so a very heterogeneous group. And what they did was, is they were on levothyroxine, they either blindly put them on levothyroxine or switched them to the combination of T4, T3 and asked how they did. And again, you can see here that here's the serum uh, TSH after uh, thyroxine and after combination. So they did a pretty good job of matching this. And if you look again at the um, free T4 and total T4, they're higher in the thyroxine alone group. And the T3 is a little bit lower, even though it's in the reference range here. So it's similar to those others, that Jonkless study that I showed you. When we give levothyroxine alone, we have a higher T4. They did better on a number of tests. Cognitive testing, mood scores, a visual analog scale of how you feel. Again, this is blinded. And so this really kind of got the field rethinking again and saying, maybe we should be doing more T4, T3. We should be doing more combination therapy. This is over 20 years ago that this study came out, but it really kind of got the field talking about this again. It was a relatively small study and not very well controlled. I don't know how it got into the New England Journal of Medicine, but I don't know if it would today. So, but is there other data? Can we back up, get a little more esoteric and move into animals? Of course we can. So this is a group from Spain that's done some really nice work in rats. And what they did in rats, which we can't do in humans, is they take out their thyroid, surgically remove it, give them an antithyroid drug, methimazole, to totally shut down any thyroid production, and then either replace T4 alone. The first study was T4 alone. And then what they could do in them was take out all their tissues. Can't do that in people. They took out all their tissues, and then they looked at T3 levels in the tissues. How did they do? So again, I'll just give you a reference here. So this is on a very low dose of T4. TSH is high, T3 and T4 are low. So they're still hypothyroid here. If you look at T3 levels in, and T4 levels in the tissue as a sign of hypo or hyperthyroidism, they're hypothyroid. Makes sense. So let's give them more T4. So if you give them more T4, well, you normalize the T4, you got a slightly low TSH, this would be maybe kind of subclinical hypothyroidism. You start looking. The equal sign means it's a normal level. You look in the tissues. T4 levels are low in the cerebral cortex, but T3 levels are normal. Maybe diadenase type 2 is defending that. Here you got this. The open ones just mean mildly low. These are more severely low, but you can see some tissues are low. Here's the muscle. High T4 levels in the muscle. So we haven't done a perfect job of replacing, at least if you're using T3 as a marker in the tissue for this. Now, if we normalize the TSH in the rats, this is just like the humans. T3 levels are normal. T4 levels at the expense of a higher T4 level. Now, what do we have? We have some hyperthyroid tissues and some hypothyroid tissues, especially if you look at the T3. So we've normalized TSH. You're fine. 
but we haven't perfectly normalized T3 levels, which remember T3 is the active hormone. Uh, this, that's the one that has the most um, binding to the thyroid hormone receptor. And then if you make them hyperthyroid, some tissues really defend that though, probably turn down type 2 deiodinase so you don't have high T3 levels um, there, but you get them hyperthyroid. But here we couldn't perfectly replace them. So they did a second study where they again go back, here's where they're mildly hypothyroid, um, and then what they did was added back T3. Here they've added back T3 and did a pretty good job. Now we got, we're better. Still have some hyperthyroid and some hypothyroid tissues. Slightly higher dose of T4, but still keeps them uh, mild thyroid failure. This combination here normalized it. So that together with that New England Journal paper, and this came out about three years before it, made people think, maybe we should think about combination T4, T3 therapy. The molar ratio is about five to one here. And if you look in a normal rat with a thyroid, the normal rat thyroid secretion ratio from T4 to T3 is about 5.7 to one. And that's the same for a pig, because that's armor is pig thyroid extract. Human is more like 10 to 13. So that's another reason I tell my patients I don't like using desiccated thyroid extract. It's a different ratio. They always say it's normal. I say it's normal for a pig. It's not normal for a person. So that's another reason I don't really like using that. So the final animal study I want to show you was, again, out of Tony Bianco's group. And they did, they did it this time. Um, I, I, no, they did another one in mice. I think this one was in rats, where they, again, did placebo, meaning they didn't get thyroid removed. This is where they, everything's normal. You're looking at the thyroid function tests. Placebo, after a thyroidectomy, they get hypothyroid, low T4, low T3. They even measured reverse T3. Monotherapy could normalize the TSH at a higher T4 level and kind of a lower normal T3 level. And this combination that they used based on the Escobar paper, they kind of, again, normalized everything. And then this is just complementary to the Escobar paper. Instead of looking at T3 levels in the tissues, they look at markers of thyroid hormone action in the tissues. If you look in the liver, um, and now we're looking at mitochondria, mitochondria go down when they're hypothyroid, come up but not all the way when they're on T4, and normalize when they're on combination. And this is just mitochondria in the soleus muscle, same thing. And this alpha GDP is again another marker and we see the same thing with that. We don't normalize these targets until we get T4, T3 combination. What they found, which was interesting, and I want you to mainly focus here on the hypothalamus. When you make an animal, probably a person too, this is deiodinase type two activity in the hypothalamus. This converts T4 to T3, and this is what tells the hypothalamus and the pituitary what the level of thyroid hormone is. It really doesn't go up that much. It's not changed all that much. And this is through a process called ubiquitination, which then sends, it does two things to type two deiodinase, decreases its activity and sends it to the proteasome. And for some reason, the hypothalamus is different than other tissues in this response. And so we may be sort of protecting that TSH, but we may not be affecting all the other tissues the way we think we are. So again, it's coming back saying TSH isn't perfect. For those of you who are thinking, oh my God, now what am I supposed to do with all my patients? We still use TSH, okay? It's still the best test we have, but I'm just showing you some data to say it's not perfect. So I showed you that first paper Buenavicius paper that looked like people do better on combination therapy. 
So a bunch of people did a bunch of bigger studies, much better controlled studies, and this is a meta-analysis of those studies. And the answer is, if you look at a large group of people, doesn't make a difference. So now we've gone from, yeah, we should use T4, T3 in everybody, to no, we shouldn't use T4, T3 in anybody. Because there's no difference in a better controlled, bigger studies. What's going on? This is one of the studies, again, out of that same Watts group, um, where they looked, and this is at, again, the general health questionnaire, the higher your health questionnaire, the worse you are, the lower, the better, in this case. And this is a T4, T3 in open, and T4 alone. No difference in that big group, large group of patients. But then they asked a second question, let's get into personalized medicine. Maybe there's a subgroup of people that's small enough, remember 10 to 15%, if you have 10 to 15% of patients who don't do well, and you have 85% who do, the whole group maybe is gonna look like there's no difference. What if we could find that 10 to 15%? So what they did was they looked at these deiodinase genes, nine SNPs in type one deiodinase, again, mainly in the liver and kidney, four or five SNPs in type 2 deiodinase. They even looked in type 3, which is, those of you who recall, type 3 mainly converts uh, T4 to reverse T3. It's the kind of buffer enzyme. But we're really looking at type 1 and type 2 deiodinase. They only found one that really had, well, they found two, but one that really had a significant difference, and this is in type 2 deiodinase. And these were the SNPs in type 2 deiodinase. So this is the most common one. 223 of the patients had this, TT, in this type 2 deiodinase gene at this location. About another half of them had TC. 16% of them had this TC that basically changed a threonine to an alanine at position 92. Okay? Who cares, right? Well, when you give T4, T3, um, versus a T4 alone, so again, lower is better. This is T4 alone in this group. Here's T4, T3. They did much better. Didn't make a difference in this heterozygote or this homozygote for this allele. This made a big difference here. They also looked at satisfaction, no difference. This was not statistically different. This was higher now in the T4, T3 group. So now that got us going about, well, maybe there is a subset of people who would benefit. All people don't benefit from T4, T3 therapy and don't give it to all people. Maybe we can find a subgroup of people where that works. This study basically said maybe we can't. <laughs> so here's, the, this is a more recent study, Netherlands, 12,000 people. They did it a, a different way and they looked at non-T4 users. They took a subset and people who were on levothyroxine. And this is women. They had a small number of men. They couldn't do it with men. So they did this with, with women and they matched them five to one for, for uh, uh, matching them for age and BMI. And they basically, interestingly, first thing they found is women on levothyroxine compared to matched controls did worse. Other studies have shown that. That's what this is basically saying here. All these quality of life scores. They, all the ones I put a red asterisk next to, they did significantly worse, okay? But it didn't seem that the polymorphism made a big difference. Now, they didn't do T4, T3. So we don't know if that is the flaw of this study. But it seems like, yes, again, people do worse. They didn't find, actually, that this polymorphism, the people did worse with the polymorphism. So we still don't quite know, because some people are arguing it affects enzyme activity. Others are arguing it more affects enzyme sh uh, shuttling, how the enzyme is shuttled and degraded. 
Um, so there's still a lot more work to be done here, but this is kind of an early clue that we may be able to try to find people who do better. So the last dip into even further esoterica. Here's T4. So we've got our four iodines on our two tyrosines that are linked. This makes T4. Obviously, an inner ring deiodination. I thought this was interesting, too, in this paper. I don't know if anybody's noticed. They only have two iodines on here. It's supposed to be three. It's supposed to be an outer ring iodine here. It's an inner ring deiodination that turns T4 into T3, the active hormone. And then we think about it going to T2, T1, deiodinase, right? That's how we inactivate it. But other ways of doing it, one way is to sulfate it. If you sulfate it, then in the liver, you can deiodinate it more quickly. So that's another way to do it. But also, byproducts are um, decarboxylating it. So now you have an amine group here only, not the carboxyl group. And this is called a thyronamine. So this is a two-iodine thyronamine, and this is a one-iodine thyronamine called 3-T-1-amine. We have a fair amount of this in our blood, and we still don't fully understand what it does. But this is a byproduct of thyroid hormone. So when people were making assays, and Josef Kerla and colleagues are the ones who really have done a lot of work in this area, they could make assays for these um, thyronamines, and especially, again, that what's called 3-T-1-amine. First thing they found is when you put it into animals, it causes decrease in body temperature, decrease in heart rate, decrease in metabolism, increased inactivity, decreased food intake, decreased pain threshold. That was sort of kind of interesting. No, that was, that's actually a real one too, but improved learning. That's, I still don't quite understand that one. Maybe rats learn differently than humans. Um, but if you look at these things, these are all kind of hypothyroid symptoms. And it works through actually a different receptor called a trace amino acid, trace amine associated receptor, T-A-A-R. That's how this works. And that's, they found, it, this is what this, and T0 amine doesn't seem to work. You need that one iodine. What I thought was fascinating is if you look in people at the concentrations, here again is nanomolar concentration of T4, much lower T3, much lower reverse T3, very low T2 and T1. Here's the 3 T1 amine level. It's similar to T4 levels. It's probably doing something. And we need to better understand what it's doing. And if you look at people, healthy volunteers versus people who had their thyroids removed and were given levothyroxine, these levels seem to be higher. And remember, high levels of that through that TAR receptor can cause some of these potential, at least in rats, symptoms that look like hypothyroidism. And if we look at a, this, the 3T1 amine level with 3T4, it really isn't a great correlation, but we really see that there's a group of people here who, no matter what the 3T4 level is, have a higher level of this 3T1 amine. So I go back to Jesse. And I say, maybe you don't have hypothyroidism. Maybe you have hyperthyronamine anemia. We've got to get a different name for that. <laughs> maybe that's what she has, causing her brain fog. Causing, although, again, remember, rats learn better, so I don't know if that totally fits, but it fits these other parts. So again, if we look kind of more, come back more practically and look at the current evidence for the treatment of hypothyroidism with combination therapy, and this is by Jim Hennessy, um, who, who basically has done a lot of thinking about this and, and written a lot about this, current clinical evidence is insufficient to support this combination therapy. 
in patients with hypothyroidism. In patients who are biochemically euthyroid with levothyroxine monotherapy but still have persistent symptoms, clinicians should thoroughly investigate alternative causes. Well, what are those alternative causes? They have a nice table in here that has a whole bunch of them. Because again, when we think about those symptoms, they're pretty nonspecific, right? And I put red arrows next to ones that I actually think about when I see my patients. And so how can we take this complicated thing, which you can go to in this paper, and have a list of things, well, I should think maybe about this, and focus it? Well, obviously the thing you need to start with is a history and physical, especially for things like sleep apnea. I don't know how many times I've diagnosed sleep apnea in somebody who has a normal TSH and feels bad. And then they get better when you treat the sleep apnea. Um, complete blood count, chemistry panel, I do these two vitamin levels. Then I think about these things in black. I think about sleep apnea. I have a low threshold for testing patients. Before I consider giving them combination, I want to make sure they don't have any of these. And so you can consider then measuring, and this is what I have in my panel that I look at in these patients. So we go back to Jessie. Why do I feel so terrible? Brain fog, weight gain, all that stuff. She has a good job, no major stressors. I ask about their sleep. Um, it's, it's difficult for her to exercise. Here again, my endocrinologist says, I don't think she seems depressed. You know, I didn't do a formal depression scale, but you can do depression scales on these patients. She doesn't drink alcohol. Colorado's had marijuana for a long time. Got to ask about marijuana. Illicit drugs, CBC chemistry panel, D level, B12 level, these other things. I even did a morning cortisol on her, just kind of as a rough screen. Sed rate. I've always heard when I was originally trained, you either need a sed rate or a doctor. You don't necessarily need both. Um, and so, but anyway, looking for inflammatory disorders, that's a pretty crude test. You can measure other things, uh, uh, HSRC, HSCRP, things like that, to look for inflammation in these patients. Her celiac panel was negative. I mean, I was really reaching, trying to find something. It's interesting, most of these recommendations and the guidelines and things, they say we should look for alternative causes. They don't yet tell us what we should do if we don't find alternative causes which I commonly do, not find alternative causes in some of these patients. And I didn't think it was sleep apnea, didn't have her worked up for sleep apnea. So I had a discussion with her about T4, T3. And again, I'll come back when I summarize about how I do this with T4, T3. Reduced her levothyroxine to 75 micrograms daily, added Cytomel 5 micrograms twice a day. What I do for two reasons is I tell patients if they're going to go to T4, T3, they've got to take the T3 twice a day. The real practical reason is, again, the short half-life. You've got to do it twice a day. The second reason is they've got to be committed to really want to do this. If they're like, eh, I don't care, then I'm not going to do it. They've got to take it twice a day. And she agreed to do that. Two months later, again, her TSH looked good. Labs looked good. She felt better. Now, again, is it placebo effect? Just because I'm doing this for her? Um, but she's 75% back to where she was. And I did not measure a 3T1 amine or do a type 2 diiodinase polymorphism, partly because I don't know yet what to do with those. We're trying to do those in studies. And I'll show you a study that we're actually doing. Uh, then five months later, again, things look good. And she really feels quite good on, on this combination therapy. And she's adherent to it and willing to take it. This is a patient where I think it's not an unreasonable thing after we did all this other stuff to give her this trial. So I'm not one of those who either says, yes, you should give everybody it, or no, you shouldn't give anybody it. 
And any endocrinologist or thyroid specialist that tells you they never give combination therapy, they either don't see any patients or they're probably lying to you. Because a lot of us, that's, we, we either have patients on it or we give a, some very few patients. So again, we need to go back and think about first do no harm, non-malfeasance in these patients. So we don't want to try to give them something that's harmful. Don't know for sure if I could be doing her some harm here. There isn't a lot of great data with this on safety. But also this idea of trying to do some good, beneficence. And then finally autonomy, bringing the patient into it. If they're really willing to do this trial, and I tell them it's going to be a three-month trial, and unless they feel much better, we're going back to T4. And I don't know how many patients I have who go back to, free, back to T4 and are now pretty happy on their T4 because we gave them a trial. That's another way to sort of do this. So, and we actually have a clinical trial, and amazingly, this has not yet been done. And the question is, is levothyroxine alone adequate thyroid hormone replacement for all patients? I'm doing this together with one of my surgeons, Maria Albuja Cruz. We have a number of people, and I actually want to give a shout out to, I don't know how many people know of or knew Dr. Chip Ridgway, who unfortunately died in 2014. He was my mentor and probably one of the best thyroid people that I've ever worked with. And, and he and I started this concept and idea. Our hypothesis is, at least until this last study that I saw, patients with the, this CC type 2 deiodinase, this alanine um, uh, at 92, will have worse working memory and NBAC test. And we got this from some of the subclinical literature. So working memory and this uh, 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 cognitive function test, as well as this well-being. We think they're going to be worse on levothyroxine alone. And all we're doing is, this is patients who are going to uh, surgery for thyroid nodular disease, have their thyroid removed and get replaced on levothyroxine. We're not yet trying T4, T3. We're first just asking the question of, can we identify that subset who don't do well on levothyroxine? And we think the other groups, those more common groups, the 85%, wouldn't make any difference. So we, and we calculated we need 20 patients with this CC polymorphism, and based on its prevalence at about 10 to 15%, we're screening 190 patients who are going through thyroidectomy. We're screening out depression, so they get a depression score. So if they're depressed to begin with, they can't come in. Abnormal TSH, they can't come in because they've already got thyroid disease. And also the thing, it's a little tricky for us, but antibodies. And my main reason for that is not that I think the antibodies are doing anything, but this may be a person who has an inflammatory state, and they may not feel well from that inflammatory state. Um, so we're screening them out. We're trying to get a clean population. And it's simple. All we're doing is doing this cognitive function, well-being, and laboratory testing before they get the thyroid removed, like Jonkless did, but they didn't do any of these other measures. They just did labs. Um, and then, then we do it six months later when they're on levothyroxine, a stable dose. Um, and again, we are, this is one where we're teaming up with Dr. Kurla uh, in Germany to measure the 3T1 amine levels. Maybe, maybe, they're, maybe the ones who don't do well have very high 3T1 amines, make excess that from uh, T4. Just to let you know, and again, I don't know if this has been approved, but this group, Drs. Chelly, Jonkless, and Coppola, have put in this pragmatic study for T4 versus T4, T3, and they're really bold. They're using desiccated thyroid extract as well and trying to do a, a kind of a practical but yet well-formulated study to compare these different uh, treatments. So kind of from this journey of taking you through practical, esoteric, coming back into practical, what are my observations? 
Number one, I really do believe levothyroxine alone does not appear to completely replace what is lost with thyroid either failure or removal. I feel very strongly about that. But number two, fortunately, observation number one does not significantly adversely affect most patients. I think if we had the most exquisite measures we could do, if we take out a person's thyroid, put them on levothyroxine alone, everybody diminishes a little bit. But some people can tolerate that very well. And they come back and they say, I've even had a lot of patients say, this is my new normal, and I'm okay with it. I think that's what's going on. And that's why we can give most people levothyroxine, because it's once a day, easy for them to take, and if they're feeling okay, I'm good. Even though if, if I could carefully test, I think it's not perfectly normal. Some patients, maybe 10 to 15%, do not do well with, either, with levothyroxine therapy alone. And obviously, we need to develop precision, personalized medicine approaches, whether it be measuring thyronamine levels or diiodinase or some other marker or markers of people. One of my other hypotheses is, is when you do the depression scale or when we do the well-being scale, I wonder if some of these folks kind of are just on the edge of normal. And then when you, give them, when you do that, you push them, you push them below. So that's another thing that we can see with this study. So what is the practical approach to patients not doing well in levothyroxine therapy? First thing I always do, especially after my patients have thyroidectomy, I tell them, I partially believe this, but I partially just want to give them a trial, is we need to give you some more time. Maybe your tissues just haven't readjusted to the levothyroxine. And so I give them a good three months. And then they come back, and a lot of them will say, yeah, I feel pretty good. And we talk about T4, T3, and I say the hassles of twice a day, two different drugs. They're like, no, I'm fine. But they came to me originally saying, I don't feel quite right. So that's the first thing I do. I encourage them that this will improve, and it does improve in most everyone. If they're still not doing well, we review those things of, could it maybe not be your thyroid, and could it be something else? And so I go through all these things that we talked about. And again, I've diagnosed, I think, every one of these severe low vitamin D. You give them vitamin D, they feel much better. Uh, sleep apnea. Uh, I have diagnosed um, Addison's disease in people. You know, things that you're, you're just missing when they don't feel right. And then we thoroughly discuss the potential risks and benefits of T4, T3 therapy and let them know that T3 is the more active hormone and we still don't have good safety data on its effect on the bones and heart even though I think it probably is okay, but we don't have good, big, long-term safety data. And if they still want to do it, I do a three to four month trial of the combination. We reduce the T4, um, and we try to hit about a 10 to 14 to one ratio of T4 to T3. And the way you do it is, is you, for every 25 micrograms of T4 you reduce, you give them five micrograms of lyothyronine, sedimone. And, and I tell them they need to take it twice a day. So they may take five in the morning, two and a half in the afternoon, or five and five, or two and a half and two and a half. And then we get that ratio for them. And I, I just check their bloods in about six weeks, readjust if needed, and then have them come back in three months. And if they don't say, I am feeling so much better, my life has changed, which I do have some people who say that, um, we put them back on T4 and they seem very happy. So I think with... If you just say to a patient, you're fine, leave me alone, your TSH is fine, this is kind of what you're gonna get. And I hope with a little more work that we do on that, patients are a lot happier with their care. And I think there'll be a lot more to come out here. So no, it is really not that simple, but the simple answer is yes, most people you can put on levothyroxine and follow TSH. Thank you very much for your attention. I'd be happy to answer questions.
can normalize T4 and T3 with combination therapy. Isn't that with the gold standard, as opposed to going by subjective assessments uh, how patients are doing, which long term may not be ideal for the convenience of taking the T3 Yeah. So the question was sort of, you know, instead of asking these sort of semi-quantitative, non-quantitative, subjective questions, could you just measure in certain tissues, you know, the T3 levels, which I think is a good idea. One thing we thought about a long time ago was putting in a little osmotic kind of catheter to be able to real-time measure you know, those levels, at least in a study in patients. Personally, I think the better thing would be is if we can get better biomarkers of thyroid hormone action, not just thyroid hormone levels, because it could also be the co-repressors and co-activators in those tissues that, that also affect thyroid hormone function. So if we can get better biomarkers. But you already have animal data that shows you that combination therapy can normalize. The, the hormone levels. Yes. Yeah, and there is actually, you're right, there is some data, at least in the Bianco study, where they even looked at action, too, that can normalize it. So you could, I, I mean, again, I think that's, a, until we get a better technology to be able to do that, less invasively or non-invasively, um, I think we're still kind of stuck. But my question is, why then not give to everybody T4, T4 T3? Um, so you could. I think this data would say you could. Two reasons. One, again, I think we don't have good long-term safety data. Um, and also, uh, there's, you're taking two different drugs. Um, one of them you have to take twice a day. And when you take it twice a day, they have to really take it kind of mid-afternoon because you don't want to take it with food. Fortunately, T3 is better absorbed with food than T4, but you need to take it mid-afternoon, and I find a lot of patients just unwilling or unable to do that. So it's, it, maybe once we get a longer-acting T3, that might help. Yes? You showed data that T3 has a circadian rhythm. Now it sounds like a perfect excuse to give it once a day and let the compression deal with the, the lower levels the rest of the day. Yeah, so the question is about T3 um, has a circadian rhythm, so maybe it's good to give, kind of like with PTH, you can just give it short term, it goes up and goes down. But if you look at the normal circadian rhythm in someone with an intact thyroid versus somebody who gets uh, one thyroid dose a day, it's very different. It's a peak and a valley with over, over about six to eight hours. It's not over the whole day. You still have your T3 that comes from the pressure from T4. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yep. But it, 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 with this um, formulation, and people have been trying to work on longer formulations, with this current formulation, you get too much of a peak in a valley when you do it just once a day. So, uh, um, with the challenge here, quite a bit, because you don't have some solid endpoints. You say the patient comes to you on T4, and they don't feel well. And so I give some T3, they see if they feel well. I need to understand a bit more about the biology of this. How does T3 differ from T4? How is that regulated by TSH? To what degree they're regulated? How is the conversion from T4 to T3 affects the metabolism of the muscle or some other cell? Mm -hmm. So we are very soft basis here. Just you feel well, okay. If you don't feel well, I'll give you some T3. If you feel well, that's fine. But what has happened 
Well, I, to make that patient feel better on this patient. I hope I showed you some of that in that esoteric part. Um, because I don't, and, and please don't take away from me saying if a patient doesn't feel well on T4, I just say, let's give you some T3. Well, that's I don't do that at all. Well, then, so what, then what, I didn't how, communicate it right to you. How do you decide what the basic decision to go to T3 on besides I'm not feeling well? Well, again, a couple of things. And one thing that has really made me think about it, because I think those patients, most common reason for hypothyroidism is chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis or Hashimoto's where the gland is being destroyed and it's slowly making less and less. To me, that's not what got me. What got me was my patients who have intact thyroids, perfectly normal thyroid function, they feel fine. I send them to surgery. They come back and say, I feel terrible on levothyroxine. So it's not, not the more common one we see. It's this less common one that made me think, wait a minute, are we doing the right thing? And if they don't feel well, you look at kind of why don't they feel well, look for those secondary causes, which we can find in some people. If we don't find those secondary causes, you're right. We could either argue, well, I don't know what it is, go home. Or let's give you a trial of this, but a very uh, a circumscribed trial in a small subset of patients. Are the receptor for e and ECE No, they're the, they're the uh, thyroid hormone alpha and beta receptors and they bind T3 at much higher affinity than T4. T4 is considered to be a pro-hormone, even though it has some binding to thyroid hormone receptor. Oh. So a question about thyroid extract. If uh, are any of these esoteric things present, do you think, in thyroid extract? And if you're going to use it, would you best give it twice a day for the T3 component? Yes, that's a very good question. I'll do the practical part first, is if a patient comes to me on desiccated extract, I don't usually say, yeah, let's try desiccated extract. I won't do that. But if they come to me on that and they want to stay on it, I say you got to go to twice a day for exactly those reasons, because there's a fairly high component of T3 in there. I don't know, and I've not seen, I don't know if somebody's done, we're looking at an extract of thyroid to say what are the Thyronamine levels, I think the belief is most of the 3T1-amine comes from peripheral conversion, does not come directly out of the thyroid okay. in these patients. Uh, does, does hypothalamic conversion of T4 to T3 differ from peripheral? Yes. Okay, and so is that really, so the TSH is inaccurate because of that? Yeah, I would say it's, it's not perfectly accurate because of that. It's not that it's totally inaccurate. Again, I think it can, and then we have a ton of data now with safety and cardiac safety and bone safety based on TSH. And so TSH is, it's not that it's not accurate at all, but it's less, ac we, I always thought of it as the perfect test. It's probably a little less than perfect because of those reasons where it's deiodinase type two is handled differently in the hypothalamus than it is elsewhere in the body. This is a dermatology question. We are the guys who ordered the ESR, so I apologize. But the question is, do you, or you know, somebody that you know, um, measures uh, the rates of the conversion enzymes that, you know, uh, convert the T4 to T, or T3 to these, you know, uh, metabolites that you think make a bad effect on the, on, the, on the patient's symptoms? Is there a difference in the, in the numbers? in the concentration, tissue concentration, distribution of these enzymes who convert them. Yes. So the simple answer is yes. There are different tissue levels. Type 2 deiodinase is in the muscle, but fairly low in the muscle, very high in the brain. Um, 
Had type 1 is very high on the liver, very high on the kidney, actually fairly high on the thyroid. Type 3 is very high on the skin, high on the placenta. And interestingly, type 2 deiodinase is regulated by hypo and hyperthyroidism, as I kind of showed. And it's thought to be a buffer because if you get very hypothyroid, you have more active type 2 deiodinase to make more T3, which is sort of the end product. And so they're trying to defend against that, the system it's believed is. There have been a lot of animal studies showing how this is all affected. Not as many human studies in the tissues under various circumstances of how the deiodinases are affected. Dr. Brown. On the other end of the extreme, I've had a couple of cases in, uh, as a cardiologist in which I've seen patients with increasing atrial activity, uh, short of persistent atrial fibrillation, and uh, measurements of T4. I know I shouldn't have done, and TSH showed that the TSH was kind of low normal, T4 was kind of high normal, and on the advice of some endocrinologists, I've subtly reduced their thyroid replacement. They were all on levothyroxine. Is there any, there must be some rationale to that, or the endocrinologists would not have told me to do that. Your opinion? Yeah, so I would say probably the endocrinologist is just trying to be helpful. <laughs> I don't think there's a lot of data that can say this is, now there is, there is good data that T4 levels, again, done in a good assay. Most assays we measure T4 in are not, they're these platform assays that are not as um, robust as some of these when you do clinical trials, some of the assays, because they're more complicated to do. Um, but there is evidence that there's a linear relationship between the effect on the heart and the bone and the T4 levels. So if you have a bit higher T4 level, maybe what you have is a patient who is quite exquisitely sensitive to that. And so, and as long as you're keeping their TSH kind of in the reference range, if you push their TSH up to three and their free T4 down 10%, they may do better and you're not harming them. So I think that's what they're trying to do to help there. In my mind, at least intervention data, there's not a lot of good data saying if you intervene and do that, the outcome's better. But uh, for the individual patient, I don't think that's a bad thing to consider trying. Thank you. If you have uh, patients with normal thyroid, but with liver or kidney disease or with both, so they would lack B2, would they have symptoms from mentioning low B2? Well, again, the, what I would say, so first of all, I don't know, you know, with liver disease, how much liver disease you need to really get rid of, it's D1 mostly in the liver, not D2. And it was thought that D1 was a primary converter of T4 to T3, but D1 is actually a very good um, enzyme for sulfated thyroid hormones to deiodinate them to make them inactive. So it doesn't do as much of the T4 to T3 conversion we have, and the same thing with the kidney, it's mostly type one. So I don't think if you had liver or kidney disease, it's gonna really affect the main enzyme, which is D2, which is not in those tissues. Last question, Dr. Pagadar. Oh, yes, thanks. Hi. So I spent some of my time looking after uh, head back cancer patients whose thyroids have failed because of local radiotherapy for larynx or pharynx cancer. And we correct them with T4, but many of them describe a burden of these symptoms, the same kind of symptoms that you were talking about before. And we don't normally think about, you know, we normally think that they're burden of symptoms related to their other cancer. Um, do you think that we should be thinking about this kind of physiology as we uh, correct those patients? A simple answer would be yes, but then practically sort of what do you do about it? And, and that's kind of why I tried to do the esoteric and come back to the practical, because again, I, 
what I would do is if, if you sent that patient to me and said, gosh, they're still not feeling right and they have what could be hypothyroid symptoms, although they're nonspecific, I would go through some of these things with them. You're right. If you have a head and neck cancer patient who's gotten chemo, radiation, how much of that is from that versus not optimizing their thyroid hormone? And, and unfortunately, at this point, I still don't know the right answer to tell you, but it's something where, uh, you know, again, when, they, when I get patients sent like that, I go through these same things with those patients. But presumably those things aren't going to get better. So is there a, I mean, maybe it's the right thing to, you know, all the, the cancer-related things, the side of treatment side effects are just going to be there. So is there a, you know, I mean, maybe it's the right thing to just try them on combination therapy. You could. I would first rule out some of those other causes. You know, are they anemic? Are they whatever? But if they don't, and then the biggest thing I guess I would say too is not just simply say then let's just give it to them and hopefully you do better, but is that really circumscribed trial? Just do a three-month trial. And if they don't say my life is so much better, I put them back on T4.